Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. So we're up to uh, the sixth of eight miracles that Jesus performed in John's Gospel. And we'll pick up from John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who's, I must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Interesting miracle. And I want to unpack this miracle because... There's some stuff in here that we need to understand so that we can take home some lessons. So let me pose a few questions. And the the first question is, why was this man born blind? What's the reason? It's interesting the disciples asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? So they draw this immediate conclusion that sin is the cause of his blindness. I find that a really interesting conclusion to jump to, so we'll talk about that issue. Then uh, there is Jesus' response, because Jesus said in verse 3, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So here's a huge question. Can God be glorified in weakness and handicap? And then there's an obvious question around the way that Jesus released this man from his blindness. Jesus spat on the ground, made some clay, put the clay in the man's eyes, then sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash. It's a really strange technique, and it's probably not what the disciples or those who were looking on would have expected. So why did Jesus do it that way? It seems a little bit strange, so we'll talk about that as well. And friends, I think what we are learning, hopefully through this series, is that nothing that Jesus does is by accident or without purpose. So as we look at these issues this morning, I think we can draw some personal application from it. So let's look at the first question, which is from the disciples. Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, this seems like a bit of a harsh question, and underlying that question is um, judgment. But perhaps it's not such a surprising question to ask because in one form or another, in regards to hardship, people today draw very, very similar conclusions. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, one of the things that we do when things go wrong in our lives is we try to drill down into why things have gone wrong. 
So when we hit some kind of unexpected speed hump, when we hit some kind of tragedy in life, one of the first things we think is, what did I do to deserve this? Did I bring this on myself? We, we might not necessarily verbalise it, but we think it. Some people even say, I wonder if God is judging me. I wonder if this hardship is because God is judging me. Is my hardship, are my circumstances, is my illness a result of something that I have done that has upset God? And that kind of mindset does exist today and it's nothing new. Uh, we talked briefly about Job last week and it was certainly something that was alive and well and a great, uh, a, a, a huge reality for Job uh, because he had some really unhelpful friends that came to him in his time of need and all they did was heap judgment upon him. One of his friends, Eliphaz, said this to him in Job 4 and 7. Job, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed... Those who plough evil sow trouble. Those who sow trouble reap it. He's not much of a friend. In other words, Eliphaz is making the judgment, Job, uh, you are in the predicament you are in. And remember last week, Job had lost everything. He goes from being this man of uh, upright standing to a man that uh, his friends find him in the ash heap, scraping sores with pieces of broken pottery. He'd lost everything. And so Eliphaz's take on this is, there must be something wrong with you that you've brought this on yourself. And the reality is this, Eliphaz was viewing Job's circumstance through a lens of very, very faulty theology. Eliphaz's theology says this, in life, everything has cause and effect. It's cause and effect. It's cause and effect. If something is wrong in my life, it's because I've done something wrong. And so because his theology is wrong, when he comes across somebody like a Job, his mate, it leads to a false assumption that this righteous man is not what he seems He's actually sinful. And we know that in Job 22 and 4, he says, Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Come on, Job, tell us the truth. Is not your wickedness great? Come on, mate, I'm your friend. Be honest with me. Are not your sins endless? Everybody thinks you're upright, but here's my take. You demand security from your brothers for no reason. You strip men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary and withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land and an honoured man living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That's why there's snares all around you and why sudden peril terrifies you. Mate, can the judgment and the condemnation from this guy Eliphaz is saying to Job, Job, you're not fooling me. You've fooled everybody else. You're not fooling me. You're not the innocent, upright, righteous man that everybody thinks you are. Otherwise, you would not be experiencing what it is that you're going through. <coughs> Excuse me. And friends, we've got to be really, really careful that we do not fall into the same trap. 
and make all kinds of judgments and draw the same kinds of conclusions when we observe things that just kind of don't match up. Even as Christians, it is a really easy trap to fall into. We wrongly think that there is some kind of moral law in the universe that says bad things only happen to bad people. And I've got to really strongly warn you against that thinking because in other religions, it's called karma. You know, as a church, we have the care of a home for the disabled in Nang Chao in the north of Burma, Myanmar. It's a home for the disabled. Most of the ones that we are caring for are children. These children are not orphans. Nobody in that home are actual orphans. They have parents. But in a religious culture where karma is the driving thing, these children born with either a physical or mental handicap are thrown out of the home, discarded onto the street, because the thinking, the faulty thinking that Eliphaz suffered from is still alive and well that says you are the way that you are in this instance because of something that you've done in a past life. We do not want that curse in our home, and so children are discarded. And, and, and what a beautiful thing it is that a church halfway around the other side of the world is picking up these discarded ones and saying you are precious in the sight of God regardless of what your culture says. And we are going to love on you and nurture you, restore into your life a sense of dignity and safety. And that is a great mission of this church, and I thank you for your commitment to that. It's a beautiful thing. But listen, having said all of that, I must say this as well, that sometimes in life there are things that we bring on ourselves. Sometimes there are afflictions that can be traced to behaviors, to habits, to sin. And sometimes we do bring it on ourselves. Uh, you know, if somebody comes up and says, Pastor, can you, can you pray for me? I've just got this terrible cough and it won't let go. I'll pray for you. What's that in your top pocket? Oh, it's just my smokes. Sometimes it is right to say, hey, I think there's other causes here. Sometimes we do need to come to God in confession and in repentance and say, God, it's just been flat out stupid behavior. And I'm suffering the consequence. Others are suffering the consequences of my stupid behavior. And I come back and I, God, I just need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I need you to break that chain in my life. But... Let us be really, really careful that we don't make the same accusation, the false accusation that Eliphaz did to Job. Or make the false assumptions that even the disciples did and the Pharisees did about the reason for this man's blindness in our passage. So that's the first question. Uh, and really, we could unpack that in a whole series in and of itself. Why was this man born blind? The next issue comes with the response from Jesus uh, uh, to the question, Who sinned? Uh, verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened 
so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I like the way the message paraphrases it. So again, to the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause effect here. Look instead at what God can do. Friends, Jesus is basically saying, in this circumstance, no one is to blame. This just happened. And as I said last week, sometimes stuff just happens. Friends, sometimes we're a lot like the disciples. We don't see the purpose because we're hung up on the cause. The disciples were thinking about what caused the blindness. Jesus shifted their attention from the cause to the purpose. And then Jesus went on to demonstrate the reality of the power of God by healing this man. And friends, instead of worrying and getting so caught up about the cause of our problems, we should instead find out how God could use our problem to demonstrate his power. Have you ever thought about the fact that we would never experience the miraculous demonstration of the power of God to heal if we never suffered from illness or disease? And friends, whenever we're confronted with a negative situation, we've got a choice to make. We can either view it from a backwards perspective or a forwards perspective. The backward perspective always asks, why did this happen? What's the cause? The forward perspective says, you know what? Stuff happens, but I know and I trust that God is going to work in and through this situation. If we always take a backwards perspective, we will always become frustrated, we'll start to wallow in self-pity, which is an ugly thing, because when we have a backwards perspective on negativity, we have a victim mentality. This thing happened to me and I am the victim. And while ever we see ourselves as a victim of our circumstances, we're not going to be moving forward because we're trapped in the past. But when you live your life from a forwards perspective... You can say, okay, this thing happened, I don't like it, I can't change it, but I'm going to trust God and see what he can do in and through this. And friends, it is that that gives us the ability to move forward and to find hope. You know, there's been a lot of faulty thinking about God's activity uh, historically and up until the present day that, you know, God is kind of like this, this genie in a bottle. And uh, we make, make declarations over the promises contained in God's word that says, you know, this is a yes and amen. And I'm claiming that over this situation. His word is filled with amazing promises and they are there to be claimed anytime I need them. We, we've got to be careful about this. So if I'm facing an issue, if I'm facing a crisis, if I'm facing a problem... And I find a promise in God's word that seems to address that problem. I pray about it and I start praying fervently about it, even though I mightn't have prayed about anything for the last two months. Uh, this is important to me. So I believe God for it. I get other people believing God for it. And then when God doesn't perform the way that we would like him to perform, we throw a tantrum and act like spoiled children or we start asking the question, what is it that I'm doing wrong here that I don't seem to see the answer that I would like or the breakthrough that I'm expecting? And I know none of us here in this room this morning ever act like this at all, but I'm told other Christians do. 
Let me say gently this morning, sometimes the relationship that we have with God is the most dysfunctional relationship in our lives. Because we go, you know, God, I don't really want you telling me what to do with my money or what to do with my relationships or my spare time. Uh, But when we hit a crisis, we go, God, why did this happen? I blame you. And then we try to coerce God by putting the guilts on him saying, God, if you truly loved me, you would take this away. And it's an incredibly dysfunctional relationship we have with God, treating him like some kind of genie that should come out of the bottle every time we need him. That God, I demand that you fix this problem right now. If you don't, it confirms the fact that I think you don't really love me. And we think that we can emotionally bribe God how stupid we are. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, every single one of us in this room here this morning are actually as near to God as we choose to be. And to the extent with which we invite God into our lives, God will come into our lives. The Bible says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. But if we choose to push him away, God will stay away. You're as near to God as you choose to be. And here's my experience. The closer that I walk with God, the nearer that I choose to draw to God, the richer that I allow my relationship with God to be, the end result of all that is I don't freak out in the tough stuff or the unexpected stuff. I don't like it necessarily, but I don't suddenly freak out saying, God, where are you? Because I'm walking with God, so I know he's there. And the confidence is, it took me by surprise. Thankfully, it doesn't take him by surprise. And I have this overwhelming sense of peace because I'm in healthy relationship with my loving God that he's got this and that he'll take me through this. So let me get a little bit creative. And as they do all the time in the movies... Let me create a fictionalized account of this true story in the Bible. Because maybe for the man in this story, maybe his family took him to the synagogue every day to be prayed for. Every day from birth, from when he was a little baby, they took him every day just to pray that he might be healed. And I see God in the background going, I see you, but not yet. Maybe eventually they stopped going to worship because they were sick and tired of everybody's helpful suggestions about what they needed to do or helpful suggestions around why their prayers weren't apparently working. And what everybody thought were helpful suggestions to this family was just a whole bunch of condemnation heaped upon them. And I see God in the background, quietly saying, not yet. Maybe ever since they had heard of Jesus' ministry, they'd been following Jesus around, they'd seen some of the miracles, they're following him around, following, going, I hope he notices us, I hope he sees our son who's blind, I hope he reaches out and touches him. And maybe day after day they go home disappointed because that never eventuated. And God's in the background going, not yet, not yet. But then the day finally comes and God says, now. 
Verse 6, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told the man, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Why? So that God might be glorified. And friends, here's the point. You cannot separate the promises of God from the purposes of God. We can go around claiming the promises of God all that we like till the cows come home. But maybe there's a a biblical principle here that we need to get a hold of this, and that's this, that the promises of God actually exist to fulfill the purposes of God. Can I say that's not terribly convenient for us at times? The promises of God are there to fulfill the purposes of God. And maybe the promises of God for your life are far greater than my personal comfort. Maybe the purpose of God in the midst of suffering has a far greater purpose than the discomfort that it's causing me right now. Maybe the guy in this story never lived long enough to fully understand this. Maybe he had a question mark over his life. About all those years that he was blind. Maybe he sat there every day thinking, so man do I praise God. I am a walking testimony, the miraculous power of God. And in one hand he rejoices and the other hand he thinks, but why did God take so long? Yes, God healed me and that's great, but why did he take so long? Maybe God's purpose for his blindness is something that he never realized till he got the glory. Maybe he died an old man without, without that issue ever being resolved. But here's how God is glorified in that man's life. Aside from the fact that you need to read the rest of chapter 9 because it's so cool because the Pharisees drag this man, it messes with their head and they drag this man uh, back on more than one occasion to question him about how all this went on. But here's the thing. Here we are in the 21st century in a little town in a place called Tasmania and we're talking about him. 2,000 years after it happened. Not only are we talking about him, but the world over, there's probably millions of people talking about that man and this encounter right now. And every single day, all over the earth, 2,000 years later, people are still glorifying God for what he did in this man's life. And perhaps as that man sat on his front porch, as an elderly man sitting there, in his rocking chair, and I'm stretching here, wondering from time to time where God was in all of those years, God could well have said to him, just whispered to him, you know what? My purpose for your life is so much bigger than your life. In fact, you don't even know it, But your life is going to be enshrined in my word, bringing glory to my name and hope for humanity for the rest of eternity. And I think that might resolve any questions you'd have about purpose. And again, let me stretch this morning because I know there's no celebrities in heaven and I know there's no pride and ego in heaven. 
But I can imagine for the billions of souls that there are in heaven, comparatively speaking, there is only a handful of people enshrined in the word of God. This guy is going to be a total celebrity in heaven. Everywhere he goes, people are going, that's the guy who was born blind. (laughs) Quick, let's get a selfie. (laughs) Because God's purpose for your life is bigger than your life. Can I hear an amen this morning? Thirdly and finally, what is with the method of his healing? Verse 6 again, having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, came home seeing. This is a really, really unusual way of dealing with this. You know, here is this blind man and Jesus, to the shock of all the onlookers, gets down, spits, makes some mud, smears it on one eye, smears it on the other eye. Then he sent him down to the pool of Siloam. We know that we know because he's done it before in this way where Jesus could have just reached out and touched the man, he would have been healed. He could have just spoken healing over the man's life without even touching him and he would have been healed. So why go to all of this trouble? Well, the answer is this. I have no idea at all. (laughs) And reassuringly, most Bible commentators, even though they try to sound smart, they don't agree, which means they don't know either. But I do know that Jesus is always very deliberate in his actions. And what it does reveal to us is that Jesus is never, ever predictable. Because sometimes we are so guilty of loving to put Jesus in a box. And I'm really comfortable when I have Jesus in a box, which contains Jesus to my experience of Jesus and my expectation of what I think Jesus should do and how I think he should function. And I'm really, really safe and I'm really secure when Jesus is functioning in the way that I've always expected him and the way that I've already always experienced Jesus to function. And then when we see Jesus functioning in somebody else's life in a way that is different, we get really, really insecure. Well, that can't be God. We've got to be really, really careful that we never, ever, ever put Jesus in a mold. We're happy to keep Jesus in a mold. Our personal experience of Jesus. And we try to reduce Jesus to some predictable, repeatable pattern that if we can work it out, all we've got to do is repeat the pattern. Repeat the program. Repeat the mold. But friends, if Jesus Christ is alive, he is alive. Can I hear an Amen. And that means he will always continually be doing things differently. The issue is not how the man was healed. It's not about methodology. It was about who was healing him. The important thing, we've got to get a hold of this. The important thing is never the program. It is never the pattern. It's never the strategy. The important thing is who is it that's behind this? Who is it that we're reaching out to? Who is it that's doing this? And Jesus spits, he makes some clay, he smears it on this man's eyes and he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. There is nothing at all magical about the water in the pool of Siloam. I think it's just this. I need you to understand the issue is not how you are healed, it's who is healing you. Friends, the issue in your life, the issue in my life, is not how God works. The issue is who is at work in my life. 
And I love the fact that Jesus was always unpredictable. I'm sure when the disciples got together with Jesus at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're mates. They probably said, Jesus, what was with the spitting thing? It was pretty gross. <laughs> Jesus may have well, well have said, hey, listen, guys, I was just messing with your head. I thought it was a riot. But here's the lesson. Just in case you think it's about methods, it isn't. Just in case you think about it, it's all about programs, it isn't. Or it's all about experience, it isn't. The light of the world is not a method. The light of the world is not a program. The light of the world is not an experience. The light of the world is a person. It is Jesus. I am the light of the world. And I will work the way that I choose to work. But friends, here's the wonderful thing. The end result will always be the same. That God will be glorified and people will be wonderfully, marvelously set free from bondage, from sin, the slavery of sin, released into the fullness of eternal life. That's the end result. But you know, his methods vary. How cool is God? Can I, can I warn you as I wrap this up, and I'll, I'll invite the team back. Can, can I warn you to be very, very wary of spiritual fads? Because spiritual fads have come and gone in the life of the church forever and a day. Uh, spiritual fads are these formulas that we think if we just do this and repeat the pattern, that's the key to unlocking the power of God in a greater and bigger and grander way. And, and even I've had to contend with this in the short life of this church. And very early on in the life of the church, 15 years ago, um, there was a thing that became very, very popular. I'm not going to mention any names, but it was a method of praying that was supposed to make your prayers so much more effective. And it's like you're not seeing breakthrough in your life because you're not praying right. And I can remember as clear as it was yesterday, I was standing in the fourth hall amongst a group of people and they were talking about me in the third person as if I wasn't standing with them. And with a smile on their face, they're saying, if only our pastor could learn to pray this way, um, this church would see breakthrough. I didn't say it, but I'm thinking it. I'm thinking, Rubbish. Our 15-year-old daughter, Esther, who's now feeling totally spooked that she's been mentioned, when she was three, she struggled with the word Band-Aid. And so if she'd scrape her knee or cut a finger, she used to come up and hold her finger and say, Daddy, can I have a Dand-Aid? <laughs> now, if I applied that thinking to her request, my appropriate response should have been, my child, your request is ineffectual. I believe that the word that you're looking for is band-aid. Unless you hearken unto me with a contrite word of supplication and correct application of the Queen's English, the language Jesus used... Away with you, request denied. <laughs> you know, when Jesus hung on the cross in his darkest moment, he cries, Abba, Father. 
You know the word Abba is an Aramaic word most often heard from the lips of children calling out to a parent. The closest we have in English is Daddy. That Jesus, in the darkest moment, didn't need eloquent speech. The Word of God says, God knows what we need before we even ask Him. And in His darkest hour, Daddy. It saddens me when I hear people say, and I've heard this, not infrequently in the life of our church. I, I really struggle going to prayer meetings because I can't pray like them. And I think that's the whole point. And can I say, we need a few less, Lord, I beseech these at prayer meetings. And a few more, Daddy, I need a dandate. So there's our story. So what's the lesson for us that this sign is pointing to? Was somebody to blame for this man's sickness? No. Can God work through brokenness and weakness? Yes. Is there a method to what God does? No. Which means if you come forward because you would like a prayer for healing at the end of the service, you can put to rest any fear that when you come forward, I might spit in your face. <laughs> because, friends, there was never ever a method in what Jesus did. There was never a formula that Jesus repeated. Again, it's not about how to bring about healing. It's about who is doing the healing. And friends, I don't know what God is doing in your life right now, but I want to encourage you. You don't need to imitate everybody else. I, I, I really struggle when people say, I wish I had the faith that you do. It's like, no, please don't. I wish I had the faith that you do. It's not about comparisons. It's about being comfortable with where you're at in God. Who it is that God has created you to be. Let God be original with you. The end result is that the uniqueness of what God does in us will always reflect a deeper, deeper measure of the character and the diversity and the creativity and the awesomeness of God. I'm so thankful God doesn't use a formula or a pattern. I'm so thankful that in this room, there are many, 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 many testimonies of how God has worked wonderfully and miraculously and awesomely in people's lives. And no two of those stories are the same. How good is God? The stories aren't the same because there's not some formula at work. The stories aren't the same because there's a living God who's at work.